Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Start. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance hi. Tonight we are all about the 2017 Prime Minister's Science Prizes, which were announced earlier this week. A big congratulations to all the winners, and we'll be hearing from three of them on topics ranging from kiwi fruit to silver nanoparticles and science films. The Prime Minister's Science Prize for 2017, which is worth half a million dollars, has been won by a huge team from Plant and Food Research. The award recognises using science to solve a crisis. The team is led by Chief Operating Officer Bruce Campbell, and I catch up with him on the phone at a research orchard in Kirikiri. A huge congratulations on winning the 2017 Prime Minister's Science Prize. Oh, look, thank you very much. Uh, It's an absolute honour and a a privilege for the team to be uh, recognised in this way. We're thrilled. Now, this is quite the team effort, isn't it? Oh, it, this has been a huge effort by a very large number of people. We've mobilised well over 100 people on this science exercise and really everyone's made a contribution on there. It's been a massive effort. So tell me, what have you actually been given the prize for? So there was a serious disease that came into New Zealand in 2010 that really uh, challenged the whole kiwi fruit industry. It was a bacterial disease that caused very rapid death of the plant. And when this came into the country, very little was known about it. So we had to mobilise a huge team of people to understand the disease and figure out what we were going to do about it to keep the kiwi fruit on track for growth. The disease is, of course, kiwi fruit PSA. And after it was detected in New Zealand in 2010, Plant and Food Research redeployed over a hundred scientists to work on it. In their first six months, they reckon they conducted more research on the pathogen than had ever been done before. This huge team of people that we had had just about every discipline you could imagine in it to be able to address that. So we needed to understand how the disease operated with pathologists and other people. We had to have breeders and geneticists to understand if we could develop new genetics that could overcome the disease and also a whole lot of um, people in other parts of chemistry and biology and food science to be able to know if we came up with an acceptable solution. Two years after PSA first hit kiwi fruit orchards and the headlines, I did an Our Changing World road trip to go behind the scenes of this massive scientific effort. One of my stops was the genetics lab of Matt Templeton in Auckland, where he introduced me to the enemy. It's a bacteria. I'm just showing you here a scanning electron micrograph of a PSA colony. They seem to be forming a swirling motion, almost a maelstrom. They look a bit like grains of rice to me. Yes, they're a single-cell prokaryotic organism. If we look at an individual one a little more closely... 
We can see that it has a couple of flagella. We tail-like things. Yes, and they help it swim and move. Uh, so they can actually swim quite quickly relative to their body length, a lot faster than, say, a cheetah, believe it or not. And it's this movement which, of course, helps them move around and enter into a plant. Matt was part of the team getting to know thine enemy. The researchers already knew there were several strains of PSA in New Zealand and they needed to sequence the PSA genome and work out a quick diagnostic test to be able to tell the virulent strain from a more benign one. They also wanted to start probing the PSA genome looking for potential weaknesses that they could exploit. Bruce says this wasn't a straightforward task. There was a huge amount of confusion at the beginning and you may remember that there was a lot of media coverage on this, there was a lot of anxiety understandably from a whole lot of growers. That was a very interesting situation for science to operate in and also um, obviously the financial community was concerned about it, what did that mean for the future of the industry. So we were very conscious in our science team that we had to come up with solutions fast, they had to be accurate and they had to be the right answer but we were operating in a very very pressured environment and that was quite unique uh, for a science team to be operating in that way and we're thrilled that uh, through the program that we ran we were able to come up with a solution that's allowed the industry to go on and be even more successful than it was pre-PSA. That solution was a new variety of kiwi fruit. Plant and food research know it as Gold 3, but for you and me, it's in the shops as Sun Gold. It's much more resistant to PSA than both the Haywards Green variety and the Hort 16A or Gold Kiwi Fruit, which was widely planted at the time. The best thing was that this new variety already existed. Plant and Food Research had been working with Zespri and the kiwi fruit industry for a long time, breeding new kiwi fruit cultivars like this, and this long-standing research program was about to show its worth. On my road trip, I visited a research orchard in Teipuke, and plant breeder Lewis Gia drove me past rows of vines devastated by PSA to the heart of the orchard, a valuable living library of plants collected over many years in the wild in China. This block holds quite possibly the second largest germoplasm collection outside China. Here is the source of resistance for the future cultivars. It's a real treasure, isn't it? It is a real treasure. It is the big resource of the kiwi fruit industry. So really this germplasm block just holds genetic potential, doesn't it? Yes, not only for PSA, it might be new diseases in the future. It basically is like the crown jewels with regard to kiwi fruit. But your challenge, of course, is that growers would like a PSA-resistant kiwi fruit right now, and the process of breeding takes it, a while. Yes, it does take several years. It depends where you start, and if we had to start from zero, it will take a rather large number of years, possibly 15 years. Uh, but we had more than 100,000 seedlings on what we call the uh, breeding pipeline, and so when you have that large number of seedlings, it makes your search for a PSA-resistant cultivar easier. But it's not only a PSA 
tolerant or resistant cultivar is one that it holds good quality in the fruit as well as yield that is what is going to make the grower happy. With hundreds of potential cultivars already in the breeding pipeline and more on the way, the new challenge was to find efficient ways of exposing them all to PSA to quickly find out which ones survived. Tony Reglinski was part of the team doing this in a secure laboratory in Hamilton. They're very devious organisms, bacteria, and they'll find various ways of getting into the plant. The breeders within plant and food are trying lots of different crosses from different genotypes, different parents. They prepare the, the, the crosses, get the seed from the, the fruit from that cross, grow up the seedlings, send them to us, and we're starting to work our way through those to see, OK, genotype A hasn't performed very well. Genotype B, oh, we've got some of those that are surviving quite well. When we come across a more resistant selection, material from those plants are then sent to our molecular biologists, so they're probing the genome so that we can actually look for resistance genes because the more information we gather, the better a chance we have of developing more resistant varieties because you can then pick out marker genes so you have a marker-assisted selection process. In our testing, we went through a whole range of different cultivars and genetics to make sure that the right horse was being backed here, that the right answer was, uh, was there for what the industry should base itself on. If we'd got that wrong and the variety had been one that ultimately was susceptible um, to PSA as well, that would have been very much of a problem. So a huge amount of testing and detailed work to actually come up with the right answer. And fortunately, that... Uh, was something that had been in the system and was starting to come through in early stages of commercialisation, that Gold 3 variety, and that was able to be rapidly rolled out um, to be able to be a successful solution to PSA. So that's a good example of longer-term research proving its usefulness because you don't necessarily know when you start that kind of research exactly what it is you'll need. In this case, what you needed was Gold 3, but you had already started that process. I think it's a wonderful example of long-term commitments to science and long-term work going on that allowed the industry to be very resilient when a problem cropped up. And there was an opportunity to dig into a whole lot of research that had been done in the past and then complement it with all this new work that was specific to a brand new disease in a brand new way that the industry needed to operate, blend those two things together. So it's a, it's a fantastic example of the importance of investment into long-term science. Now, PSA has dropped out of the media recently, but I presume it's still an issue here? Very much so. This is very much now for the industry a matter of living with PSA, and it's a subject of a large amount of ongoing research to understand it because the um, plants and the disease are in a constant battle together, sort of fighting against one another, and so it's a matter of being very vigilant and uh, really continuous improvement in the way that plants are developed for that disease and management systems that actually can help it as well. So it's a very different situation for growers now where there's a whole lot of new management systems, new varieties, new approaches that are being taken to be able to live with PSA. So what kind of research is going on at Plant and Food at the moment? So we're looking really at a much broader genetic base for uh, kiwi fruit, a whole lot of different varieties with 
screening for pre-SA being a, a major part of that whole thing. There's a lot of work going on at a very fundamental science level too to understand more about that interplay between uh, diseases like PSA and the plants themselves. In a sense, an analogy there to um, human um, disease prevention that there's a constant set of new diseases that are potentially challenging the human uh, population, very similar with plants. And so understanding the fundamental mechanisms of that give us a much better approach for coming up with better systems for managing disease that are kind on the environment and good for people's health as well. Thanks, Bruce. That was Bruce Campbell, Chief Operating Officer at Plant and Food Research and leader of the 100-plus team that's won the 2017 Prime Minister's Science Prize. That team includes Lewis Gere, Matt Templeton and Tony Raglinski, who we also heard from. And Bruce says they'll spend their half a million dollars of prize money on strengthening collaborations with international researchers. Now, I should point out that Gold 3 or Sun Gold kiwi fruit are not just resistant to PSA. They have a lot of other advantages as well. They taste great. And in the Science of Vitamin C podcast that Simon Morton and I made last year, we found out that Sun Gold kiwi fruit are a vitamin C superfood. Just one gives you all your daily VITC requirements. I'll put a link to that on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Koto tato au horihori tene, he hotaka e pana ki te putaio, te taio, me te kopapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance with Our Changing World, and now, the 2017 Prime Minister's McDiamond Emerging Scientist Prize was awarded this week to chemist Carla Melodandri at the University of Otago. Carla's been collaborating with a dental colleague to find new ways to treat dental infections and combat tooth decay. She works at the nanoscale. We design and develop nanoscale materials. So they are materials with at least one dimension on the nanoscale size range. And we do that um, because we can produce materials that have very unique and specific properties. And we try to design those materials so that we can aim to solve various real world problems. So what's an example of one of the real world problems you've been trying to solve? The longest running research program uh, in my group has been uh, in collaboration with dentistry. So I had a very um, fortunate meeting with my lo- now longtime collaborator about seven years ago, Don Swass. That was scientist speed dating, wasn't it? So can you t- tell me about that? <laughs> It was. It was. Uh, Don and I were both new to the university. Um, I had started as my as a first uh, academic post uh, as a lecturer, and Don had run his own uh, dental practice for for many years and was returning to university uh, and returning back to academia. And so we we're both new to the university, and so we had needed to attend a course um, specific to those who were new to the university. And the idea was speed dating for scientists, where you have three or four minutes to talk to other scientists and explain your research and just try to make connections and collaborations. So um, having come from a clinical background, Don was very uh, aware of uh, the problems in clinical dentistry that didn't yet have solutions. 
Um, and I came with the, a skill and ability to design materials on the nanoscale and silver nanoparticles in particular, as you decrease their size, they become more and more antibacterial. And so it made sense that we combined our efforts and just tried to design and create materials containing silver nanoparticles that could be used in dentistry to treat the bacteria, which are the source of the, the dental diseases. So why hadn't this been done before? Silver has been used in dentistry for many, many years. We're definitely not the first to incorporate silver into dentistry. Silver has been used in the form of either an amalgam, so people are quite familiar um, with amalgams that would contain the mercury and the silver, etc., and also in the form of ionic silver or silver solutions, so silver nitrate or a product called silver diamine fluoride. There are limitations to both of these products. So with the amalgam, there are concerns about the use of mercury, but the silver can't penetrate down into the tooth structure from the amalgam where the bacteria remain. Um, and with ionic silver or the silver solutions, the ionic silver can cause a, a really dark staining of the tooth. So while it's effective and it kills bacteria, um, it creates a really black, dark black stain on the tooth, which increasingly patients aren't uh, very accepting of. So silver nanoparticles, uh, because of the unique properties of materials on the nanoscale, as I said, when you decrease their size, they become really highly antimicrobial. That means that you only you need to use a very, very small amount in order to have the desired effect. And people have been trying to do this, and we've visited with several dental companies abroad that have certainly been trying to incorporate silver nanoparticles into dental materials. Um, there are a couple of issues. One is that because, again, because of the unique properties, they have a very high surface energy. That means that the particles inherently tend to want to clump together or aggregate. When they do that, they become dark colored. So again, that leads to discoloration. But when we can um, stabilize their surfaces or we can add specific molecules to the surface to keep them separated, that allows them to remain a very, very pale yellow uh, color or oftentimes colorless. Putting these specific molecules on the surface, this also allows us to incorporate these silver nanoparticles into a wide variety of materials. So we can put them into a liquid, we can put them into a gel, we can put them into a cement material, depending on the molecule we put on the surface. And so we have a lot of, by understanding kind of that fundamental underlying nanoscience and surface science, this allows us to develop a wide variety of different materials, depending on the disease and depending on the clinician's preferences. So this collaboration with Don, it's already led to a startup company being founded, hasn't it? Yes, yes, something we're really excited about. Very newly formed, um, only in the last few months, uh, called Sylventum Limited. So at the moment, it's run out of my lab uh, here in the chemistry department uh, at Otago. Um, but we have now have a, officially have a, a board and a CEO and scientists and myself and Don advising in the company. So that's been really, really fun. I gather you also work in the area of clean energy technologies. Very recently, yes. Yes, I am moving into that area as well. And this involves making nanoscale crystals of what are called metal organic frameworks. Um, these are framework materials that have very large pore volumes that can adsorb gases. Um, this could be carbon dioxide from, from the atmosphere. This could be um, hydrogen storage to, to be used, uh, eventually used as a, as a clean fuel. 
And there are many, many scientists working on designing new metal organic frameworks. And it's a really hot area and, and a very exciting area. I guess our contribution to this has been finding new ways to make them on the nanoscale. And the benefit of doing that is that when you take materials and you decrease their size down to the nanoscale, it means that the materials effectively have more outside than they have inside. They have more surface than they have volume. So the pores, these, these pores that can adsorb and hold gases, are located at the surface, or the majority of them are located at the surface rather than in the interior. So some of the limitations of macroscopic or bulk metal organic frameworks or MOFs is that the while theoretically they can adsorb a really large volume of gas and do so quite efficiently. In practice, this theoretical capacity is not always achieved because there's a limitation in how the gases can be transported to the interior pores of the crystal or the material. So by making them on the nanoscale with all the pores at the surface, this means that we can more um, readily achieve those theoretical um, capacity, gas capacities. So they'll be much more efficient at grabbing that gas and holding onto it. We hope so. That's that's the idea, yes. Why does science matter, Carla? Personally, uh, I'm really excited about the idea, as I said, of, of solving these problems, of solving problems that affect people on a, on a daily basis. Things like using the science to start up companies I and mean, creating jobs in New Zealand and, and good for the economy. It is the understanding of the underlying fundamental science that enables us to apply the science to solve problems. And I think it matters for everybody. Thanks, Carla. That's Carla Melodandry from the University of Otago and the McDiamond Institute. Carla says she plans to spend the $200,000 prize money that goes with the 2017 Prime Minister's McDiamond Emerging Scientist Prize on recruiting new postdoctoral researchers to work in the lab with her. The 2017 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize has been awarded to filmmaker Damien Christie from Sci Films. He's going to use his $100,000 prize to set up New Zealand's first science video news agency. Damien tells me that although he trained as a lawyer and went on to have a journalism career, he's always been fascinated by science, but frustrated by how it's often presented on TV. My time working as a reporter at TVNZ, I realised, and you'd probably know this yourself, that science journalism has, has certain challenges. You know, science research takes a very long time, and it's OK if you're doing print or, to an extent, radio. You can come along at the end of the research and interview people about the research and whatnot. With TV, uh, you require pictures, and that often means that you needed to be there two years earlier to get the photos, and, and, and that was an ongoing challenge working as a, as a reporter. And so I sort of thought, well there must be a different way of doing this. And, and if I can work alongside scientists and capture the video when the research is happening. Uh, I mean, a good example was um, I did a story, I got asked to do a story about these healthcare robots that were going to be the future of healthcare. And by the time the research was published, I said, great, can we film the robots? And they said, no, the robots went back to Korea about two years ago. You know, the robots haven't been here for ages. And which in TV, that doesn't leave you with a lot. You get some, maybe some, someone took an iPhone shot of some robots, but you don't have a lot to, lot to go on. I thought, well, well, if you'd been there at the time and you'd able to pop in and film here and film there. But in the modern TV newsroom, that doesn't really work either because if you use the camera resource, because things are so restricted, the budgets are so tight, people expect to see that on TV that night or the next night. There's very little long-term investment going on. So you've 
started getting out, you started filming this research happening? Yeah. When I started up Sci Films, that was, that was the plan, was to get alongside scientists. I mean, it, it's taken a different, um, some different turns, and as a result, um, with this prize, I'm actually going to start up a new agency, it's the Aotearoa Science Agency, which is hopefully going to do what I originally intended Sci Films to do, which is very much pure science journalism, working alongside scientists, working, looking at research, looking at you know, the work that they do, because I think there's so much much amazing stuff happening out there that people have just got no idea about the the work that the scientists are doing in the field and often even the scientists themselves I think don't appreciate you know some of the really cool stuff they're doing they're very focused on the outcomes at times and you say to them oh so where did you do all this research oh we spent three weeks in a tent in Antarctica Um, but what's really important is the the growth rate of this lichen you know and so um, I think being able to visualize some of that stuff is, is really key. I'm with you on that one. That's one of the best things about my job here on Our Changing World is getting out in the lab and in the field with scientists doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's so many amazing stories. I've been working with the, the Science Media Centre um, who do fantastic work. Over the last few years, I've been helping them with some media training of scientists, helping scientists to better tell their own stories. And it was really doing that that got me into, really sort of, I think, galvanised my thoughts onto moving into science communication, science journalism, because I'd just be here sitting there saying, OK, tell me what you do and we'll work on the way that you say it. And they'd say, oh, well, I'm a dental technician for the dead. I, I scrape the teeth of... Um, you know, bodies that we, uh, you know, bones that we find in these Pacific Islands and I DNA test. I'm like, this is amazing. Why isn't this on TV? You know, or, or oh, yeah, I, I look at the mating habits of these wasps that are attracted to orchids and I drive around Northland with a flower hanging out the window of my car and I'm the, the TV journalist in me is saying, I want to see this. I want to visualise this. You know, forest penguins and Fjorden. There's so much amazing stuff happening, as well as, of course, the the stuff that's happening in the labs. And that's the real... The stuff that also excites me is being able to try and those you know it's easy to tell a story about penguins right they've got penguins they're beautiful everyone wants to see them or whales and but trying to tell the story about quantum photonics or something um, and make it understandable and that's as a journalist that's something as a TV journalist it's something I've always sort of enjoyed doing is when something like for instance Facebook first came along and I was working on um, close up at TVNZ and trying to explain to people what Facebook was before Facebook. You know, you can't just show them pictures of the screen because that's not what Facebook is. Facebook is a, a network of people and, you know, all these other things and trying to explain that. And science to me is the same. It's like, okay, I can explain photonics to you and I can explain quantum optics to you. It's going to take a while. We might need some animation. We might need to think about this a bit. But, you know, it's getting that story across. So why do you think it's important that people understand science, that they understand the process of science? There's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, firstly, I think that, you know, to understand science is to understand the world around us, and that's that's incredibly important. I think there's a lot of public money being spent on science. Uh, there could be more, of course, but there's a lot. And I think in order to safeguard that, the more people understand the way that money's being spent and why it's being spent and how it's being spent and the work that's being done for it sort of safeguards that funding into the future. I know there's a lot of governments always get nervous when they throw millions of dollars at something and then no one hears about it. So making sure you get the message out there so people go, oh, those people at NIWA, they're doing fantastic work. That's that's good bang for buck, as it were. Um, those, are, those are a couple of the reasons. There's, you know, there's a real democratisation of, of knowledge, I think, and we're... We're in difficult times, Alison, <laughs> when it comes to the truth and facts. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump just uh, just the other day talking about record, you know, polar ice caps and things like that. We're in a strange world and we need to be fighting the fight. How's the Aotearoa Science Agency going to work? 
so it's sort of a modern take on a, on a traditional press agency. So the idea is that I um, work alongside organisations and I sort of say to them, well, what research have you got going on? And I think about what might be, what might work well. And I have a team of people working for me and we produce video stories. And they've got some accompanying text, of course, to help them sort of work in various formats. And that gets provided. Now, I've, I've made some deals with some big broadcasters. Um, I'm hoping to add some more shortly and um, uh, hoping that RNZ is going to be one of them. And so the stories will just be then come out that way. So it's a fine line because, you know, if it was if I was working with car companies, well, it would be PR if I was putting out stories about the, the great new Toyota Corolla, go and buy one today. But because it's science, as long as we're careful about the stories we do and we make sure that we focus on the research that's going on, it's not PR. So it doesn't matter so much if, you know, some of the funding is coming from those organisations. But one of the great things about the Prime Minister's um, science prizes is that there's some money attached to it. And that'll help me be able to fund a broad range of stories, some that wouldn't necessarily have funding attached to them, to make sure that I can reach communities that wouldn't otherwise be reached, science that you know wouldn't otherwise be touched. Um, so I'm hoping that that will really uh, springboard and show the breadth of what we're capable of. Now I gather you're collaborating with one of the previous winners of the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize, Susie Wiles. I am. Susie's been awesome to work with. Uh, we've had a huge amount of fun. It's been a long project, I think basically because Susie and then um, and then me as well got re- got really busy. So some of the stuff we filmed a, a year ago and it's only just coming to light now. But um, we're hoping, we've, we've been doing a series, um, a kids series with Susie's daughter Eve, who I think was 10 when we started. She may be 11 now. Um, looking at the world of microbiology, doing stuff that fascinates kids. So we make, for instance, spoiler alert, we make uh, stinky cheese out of the stuff using the bacteria you find between your toes. Does anyone eat it? Some people on Ponsonby Road did. They didn't necessarily know where the bacteria came from until we told them afterwards. But nice um, one. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was all done very, you know, health conscious, sterilised, all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, st- kids love that stuff. Feet cheese, you know, and um, getting your poo analysed to see what's living inside you, the human microbiome. Getting glow in the dark bacteria from the bum of a snapper. Uh, it's you know really good stuff for kids, but also just a world, you know, into the world of microbiology. So that's a that's a cool series that we're just uh, finishing up now. Thanks, Damien, and we'll be looking out for that kids' microbiology series with Susie Wiles. It sounds great. That was Damien Christie from SciFilms and the soon-to-be Aotearoa Science Agency. He's the winner of the 2017 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. That's all we've got time for tonight, but you'll find those stories and some photos on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Why not check us out as a podcast? Just search for RNZ Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider. We are on Facebook and Twitter and our handle is RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week at the same time. But for now, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tō Paul.